You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So I, I vividly remember my freshman year in college um, because I, it, it, was a, it was a profound, actually the first two years were really profound, but there were some experiences that happened with me and the Bible uh, that have shaped me for the last decade. Um, I started attending something called Crossroads, which was at the time a, a college worship service at Fellowship Middlebrook. Uh, it was honestly at you know 18 years old, the very first time I felt like someone had opened the Bible um, and verse by verse just began to jump off the page at me. It was illuminating. It was uh, powerful. It was exciting. I felt like what was really difficult to comprehend became a little bit more understandable and palatable and God began to seem real to me. Um, I also started going to a campus ministry at the time called VFC. And while I only ended up really staying there for a year, it challenged me and it stretched me and it molded me and led me to Jesus. Their view of their big view of God, their intense um, posture of worship, their intentionality. I still feel like I carry with me today um, some of the mentorship that happened in that church, my, particularly my freshman year, uh, is vital to my faith. But the straw that really stirred the drink was my living situation with my college roommate, who for as much as I knew at the time, loved the same Jesus I did, but had started attending a church that was different from the one that we went to in high school together. And... Um, Little did I realize that over the next nine months, that would be the tip of the iceberg of the issues that would amount. And after inviting him to a couple of the crossroad services and him giving every feasible reason why he was not going to come with me, he then proceeded to say, hey, let me tell you some things. No joke. Took me out to the Ibachi factory on the strip, paid for my dinner and told me I was going to hell. Uh... And for the next four months, he would break out his massive New American Standard Bible. And I would break out my massive ESV college Bible that I got the summer before college started. And literally for the better part of nine months, we would verbally spar once a week at the very least over interpretation, over things like is baptism for obedience or out of obedience or is it for salvation? Uh, We would talk about a a lot of peripheral things, never really central things. Um, And it got got to the point where at the Christmas break, I said, um, we have two options. Uh, Either I I move out (laughs) or we never talk about Jesus again. (laughs) Uh, to which we didn't, um, and it was really profitable for our relationships. Um, but I had a lot of things happening to me, and for the first time in my life, the scriptures are jumping off the page as if there's a personal God who is intimately connected with me and loves me and is pursuing me, and yet is also way above me, and I'm having these revelations of who God actually is. And then I have a college roommate who is bound and determined on a weekly basis <laughs> To talk about all the reasons why our high school church experience was a complete sham and a fraud. And this collision of experiences, both the good ones and the hard ones, led me to one place. And that place was 
I must master the Bible. Because my roommate needs a better apologetic for how to engage the scripture. And my friends need my expertise. Because I sat in a college worship service for four months. And all of a sudden, I am the second coming of Martin Luther in Southern American form. And needless to say, I made some new friends that year, but I made a good bit more enemies. And I loved the knowledge. And I loved the power that knowledge gave me. I loved dismantling someone in an argument, particularly people who were way smarter wiser and had a much greater depth of character than I still couldn't dream of. And if you're a runner, you know that you experience a runner's high, which is this deeply relaxing state of euphoria after an intense exercise. And that's what it felt like to me after I sat across the table at someone from Einstein's Bagels in the Haslam Business Building and completely undressed their theology because I read some articles that I could practically parrot to them. I did this to my old college pastor. I did this to three adult mentors um, who mentored me in high school because I knew some things. And I also was a complete jerk. And it wasn't actually until my junior year of college at the Panera Bread. Shout out to Zaru and Caitlin talking about the Panera Bread on the Strip. I was there in 2010. And there was a man named Dennis Shower who sat across the table from me. He was probably in his mid-20s at the time. He worked for the Navigators. Uh, and he looked me straight in the eye, did not miss a beat. And it was one of the times in my life where I genuinely sensed that Dennis was not talking to me. God was. And he said this, Wesley, I think you love theology more than you love God. You, you, have a, you love a knowledge of God, but I just have one question for you. Have you met the one who the theology is about? And I don't honestly know if my heart rate skyrocketed because I was so mad that someone would accuse me of not really loving God. Or if it drastically slowed down to the point of almost not beating because if words could kill, they would have obliterated every sense of selfish theological ambition I was putting out there. Thankfully, God gifted Dennis both the wisdom and the courage to say something to me in that moment where my ego was inflating at an increasingly rapid rate. And the takeaway from my first two years in college was that I needed to master the Bible. That was not a great takeaway. And what happened at the Panera booth was deeply unsettling but so necessary because it was the realization for the very first time in really my life, but particularly those two years in college, where I didn't need to master the scriptures. I needed the scriptures to master me. And there is a significant difference between the two. Last week, we talked about reading the Bible above the surface. And this week, we talk about reading the Bible below the surface. And I feel like there are two major shifts when we think about Bible reading and studying the scriptures that we need to make. 
Not because there is a, quote, necessarily one right way to read the Bible, but because there is a person that the Scriptures point to, and our aim in reading the Scriptures is to become like that person. So there are two shifts, and then there is one ancient practice from the way of Jesus that I want to talk about. So the first shift is from information to transformation. Most of the time, I think, if we're honest, we read the Bible for information. And maybe on really good days, we read the Bible for insights. Because we love insights. I think we actually live in a day and age where we have come to believe that receiving insights is the same thing as living them out. Mining the scriptures and studying the Bible and reading this beautiful library is so critical. But if we stop at the logic and reason of it... We have missed it. Why? Because Jesus is not a subject in school. He is a person. The Holy Spirit is not a category to be studied. He is a person to love and be loved by. And we have grown up in a doctrinally rich age. And thank goodness for that. I am so glad that there are streams of the church that have recaptured the essence and importance of our rule of faith what we call our statement of faith, what we believe. But right thinking does not always equate to whole living. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is probably a passage you know well. It says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. There is a whole body receiving of God's mercy, not an intellectual knowledge of God's mercy, but an open-handed reception to the God who is merciful. And it is out of that ever-flowing stream of God's unconditional love that we get to offer our whole selves to God. If you know the layout of Romans, Paul spends the first 11 chapters in this grand crescendo of the human problem and the divine solution. Sin is the problem, death is a result, and God is the one who has made the way for his family to come back to him. So he's giving this grand vision of the doctrine of God, and then he says... I am urging you to offer up your entire self as a sacrifice to God. This is what it means to worship Jesus. And then he gives this exhortation. Do not conform to the patterns of this world. I wonder what you think the patterns of this world are. Because in some ways they look very different than in Paul's day. And in some ways they're exactly the same. Right? Greed, lust, Envy, hunger for significance, being needed, slothfulness, deceit, consumerism, careerism, sexism, racism. The trees look different, but they share the same roots. And it is so easy, in fact, to be conformed, which is to be formed with, the prefix con meaning with, formed into or with the patterns of this world. Because consider something. Consider how much information you take in each day. The ads, billboards, podcasts, shows, music. According to a study done by the University of California, San Diego, the average American consumes about 34 gigabytes of information a day. 
To put that in perspective, you are inputting at some level about 100,000 words a day, which is the equivalent to Tolkien's book, The Hobbit. And if you've read The Hobbit, you know it's typically not a single sitting read. So in a whole week, you will have read the equivalent of The Hobbit seven times. So whether you like it or not, the current of social pressure, societal norms, patterns of living, and the fact that we live in an uh, ever-increasing, hyper-intentional, information-centered age, everything you take, take in is shaping you. It is literally shaping you. And if you think about all the ways you are being formed, or probably what is better said, all the ways you are being deformed, think about this. How does a quiet... Introverted kid in the first grade end up becoming a mass shooter. How does a church-going kid become a porn addict on the sex registry? How does someone who grew up in a wonderful home that is potentially financially the most sacrificial and generous become a slave to Wall Street? How does a man who grew up in a home where his father was a dentist and his mother was a stay-at-home mom end up with a billion dollars worth of damages because they were committed to spreading a message that a mass shooting was a conspiracy theory by the government for the last 10 years? How does that happen? Formation. Formation is how it happens. Or maybe it's a bit more personal and subtle, but like, why am I so angry? When I am confronted. Where did the idea come from that I am entitled to certain escapist behaviors? Why is my natural default to retreat into passive comfort rather than to press into interpersonal conflict? How did I get here? What stories have I told myself and what stories have other people told me? What story am I living in? Secularism has shaped your world to believe that God is distant and irrelevant. Media has shaped your view of sexuality to be selfish and self-seeking pleasure. Violence has shaped your view of anger and justice. Consumerism has shaped you to believe that your preferences must be met. Bad religion has shaped you to believe that following Jesus carries with it little to no cost. And political worship has shaped you to believe that the kingdom of God will come through the halls of government. Formation is happening all the time. We are constantly formed and deformed. And the library of scripture is an invitation to be formed across, which is what trans means, across patterns and beyond patterns of this world. But if we treat the scripture as some type of encyclopedia that will give us bite-sized answers to some of life's biggest questions, we will be both sorely disappointed and we will not be formed by them because we will reduce the book to quick answers, not transformative, lifelong power. Paul, in writing to the church at Galatia, is rebuking the people for being taken captive by an alternative gospel and confusing the gospel of the kingdom. And he says, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I have not given birth to a child. Word on the street is anguish is a very uh, PG word. (laughs) 
It is a lot more gruesome than just um, mere, uh, what's the word? Um, it, is, it is an overwhelming anticipation, expectation, and drive for a child to come out. And that is Paul's vision for Jesus to come alive in the church. Hopeful anticipation, prayerful intercession, and open-handed surrender to the life of Jesus coming alive in you. The library of Scripture is difficult, confusing perhaps even at times. But it will, by the Spirit's power, transform you into the person of Jesus if you let it. The problem is we have come to believe it's easier to not let it. When in fact it's actually, that is the wide and much more gruesome path than to be honest with God. So the first shift is information and transformation. The second shift is from stories to encounter. I think might be the greatest temptation, especially in our little corner of evangelicalism, is that the stories of the Gospels and the stories of the New Testament are just that. They're little stories from another world. They are not meant to merely be stories that are read. They are introductions to the God of the story. So when we read... For the word of God is living and active, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit of joint and marrow, discerning intentions of the heart. We're not reading cute prose. We're reading a description of the Holy Spirit's use of the scripture, a divine encounterment to break you down and meet you. Maybe my favorite story in all the Bible is two people. One of them, we don't even know their names, but the other one's name is Cleopas. They're walking to a village called Emmaus. Jesus appears to them. They don't recognize him. And he's literally asking, so what are you guys talking about? And they go all in, right? Jesus has died. Uh, we're not sure what's going on because we thought he was the Messiah. This, this, this promised one that we read about in the, in the Old Testament, in the Torah. And he apparently uh, is alive. Some eyewitnesses are telling us this. We're not sure, but these eyewitnesses we're in good relationship with, and they are not, they wouldn't be lying about this. So, but we're, we're still wondering what, what is going on? And Jesus opens the scriptures to them, beginning with Moses, and goes prophet by prophet. Elijah, Samuel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah. And he explains. How all of them point to him. And so they ask him to stay with him, and he does. And here Luke recounts that Jesus took bread, gave thanks for it, broke it, and gave it to them. The last time that happened was around the table in the upper room. After Lord's Supper, Luke uses the exact same language to describe this encounter as the Lord's Supper, which is that Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them. And it says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They ask each other, were our hearts not burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Were our hearts not burning within us? 
It is not a book to be studied merely. It is a lifestyle where your heart starts to burn within you. The truth is that we don't really want to know more stories of the Bible. We want to know the author of the story. And I will not speak for you because I don't know the intricacies of each of your stories, but I will speak for myself. One of the reasons, I would argue one of the main reasons, I would argue one of the main overarching reasons that I am in this room is because Southern comfortable cultural Christianity has allowed me to know the things of the scriptures without encountering the God of the scriptures. And I have come to a place where I realize that is not enough. I want to be transformed by the scriptures because I have encountered the God of the scriptures and have overcome by glory. All throughout the Bible, people meet God and their reaction just feels and hits a lot different than ours. Moses meets with God through a burning bush and Moses hides his face because he is afraid to look at God. Jacob wrestled with God so much that his hip is permanently injured. And he says upon his encounter, I have seen God face to face and yet my life has been delivered. The Holy of Holies, the place of, God, the place of God's presence in the temple, had a massive curtain that allowed no one to enter it except one person on one day of the year, a high priest on the Day of Atonement, where he would bring the blood of the sacrifice, but he would also bring a burning incense offering. Do you know why, one of the reasons why he brought a burning incense offering? It was so the smoke would come up and cover the mercy seat Because if he saw the mercy seat, he would die. Isaiah's vision of the Lord that he is taken into the throne room of God where the whole train is filling the temple. There are seraphim, these sort of heavenly creatures with six wings. Two covering the Lord's face, two covering the Lord's feet. And Isaiah sees this and literally falls down and hears the seraphim saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And his only reaction is to say, kill me. Kill me now. I am nothing. When God speaks to Ezekiel, he says that the spirit filled him. There was a great earthquake. And Ezekiel goes to the Sherebal Canal. And he was so taken aback by the presence of the living God that it says, And I sat there overwhelmed. For seven days. When Jesus heals a paralytic in Luke 5, he rises up from his mat and awe and amazement sees the entire crowd. And they're filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Jesus heals ten lepers. Only one comes back, recognizes that Jesus is the one who healed him. He's God in the flesh. And it says he fell down at Jesus' feet. Like on his face. When Jesus meets the woman at the well, he affirms her dignity and says, though culturally we should not be having this conversation, and ethnically we should not be having this conversation, you will never thirst again. And she sprints back to her hometown, becomes essentially the first missionary in the gospel account of John, and says, I just met with God. 
When the early church began to be in Acts, we see that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer. And it says, all, all came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. The book of Acts is literally just story after story of what happens when people encounter God. And I am guilty of this as well. So guilty. Most of the time, when we meet with God, individually, collectively, corporately, our response is, that was a nice time. It's a pretty good time. Insightful passage. That was a good line, he said. It is never, rarely, we've just been with God. There is more for us. God has more for us. The purpose of Scripture is not that you would study the stories to know them. The purpose is that you would encounter the living Christ and be so undone by His wonder that your life is marked by it forever. And see, this is where I think in our strand of Christianity, we have separated the Spirit of God from the Word of God. I really like the illustration that Paul Miller uses in A Praying Life about the Word and the Spirit. He says there are two types of people, broadly speaking, in American Christendom. Uh, there are the word-only people and there are the spirit-only people. And so he says when we are word-only people, we believe that God speaks only through his word. If it is not directly in the scripture, then we cannot really experience God. And here's what the implications of that are. Rigid compliance. I do God's will, but I am narrowly focused on knowledge and obedience but in sort of this very rigid, boxed way. And we typically struggle with the sin of omission here. Meaning, I won't commit adultery, but I'm completely going to miss compassion. Because that's much more layered, nuanced, situational, and quite frankly, it requires something more of me, namely a listening ear. And here is the result. A dull life with little sense of the master's hand in shaping it. We call that rationalism, where reason and logic are the only measures of truth. The only measures. Then there are spirit-only people. And when we are spirit-only people, we believe God speaks through the spirit as authoritatively as the word. And here's what the implications are. God does my will. And I read my thoughts as God's. And we typically struggle with the sin of commission here. My feelings rule my life, opening the door to things like lust, laziness, and self-will. The result is a feelings-driven life marked by confusion between your will and God's. And a word we call this romanticism. Intuition and feelings are the measure of truth. Here, we can be both. We, the call is to be both, actually. And here is my longing for us. As you saturate yourself in the Word, you give the Spirit vocabulary and language to personalize the Word to you. All right? Let me give you a good example, okay? And this is more Kinsey, my, uh, da- our daughter, than it is me. 
Um, this week I'm reading in Psalm 19.1, right? The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. Um, and at 5.45 in the morning, it was a text to be read. Okay, I read it. It was a good read. I loved it. I'm taking the kids to camp. We're driving on the road. Kinsey says, look, a dragon. And I was like, a dragon? He was like, that cloud, it looks like a dragon. And I was like, huh, kind of does, actually. Um, and then Sam was in the car, and they were talking about the dragon in the sky. And Kinsey just had this one where she said, God made that dragon. And I was like, kind of did. He kind of did. Because the skies proclaim its handiwork. And all of a sudden, something I read got really personalized to me. A month ago, I'm reading Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. A less lovely verse in the skies proclaims his handiwork. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. I come home. No one greets me. I feel bitter. I'm pissed. I had a weird day at work, so I'm even more angry. All of a sudden, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun. Do not give an opportunity. What happened the last eight hours that I came in so irritable and ticked that I was not actually able to pursue the people in my home, but I was waiting to be pursued by them? Oh, that's right. It's because I didn't actually let the Lord pursue me the eight hours prior to me entering my home. All of a sudden, the Bible stops becoming words on pages and it starts actually getting into my body. The goal is not to become a Bible nerd. Although, if you do, great. The goal is to be overcome by the God of the Bible. And of course, there are so many times in Scripture or in times where you come to the Bible and you're confused, apathetic, don't want to read, it's confusing, you feel angry, you feel afraid. What if I read something today and my entire faith gets absolutely upended? What happens? Those aren't, they are valid questions, but they aren't true questions. And there is a difference between the two. Because the point of reading scripture is not reading scripture. And it is not to come up with all of the right intellectual answers to solidify your faith. It is a deepening of your intimacy with God. And there is an ancient approach, one that has been practiced for millennia, called Lectio Divina. Or that's in Latin for divine reading. And Ruth Haley Barton says this about our general reading of the scripture. She says, our emphasis is primarily on mastery, controlling the text for our own ends, gathering information, interpreting or applying the information, proving our point about something, gaining a ministry tool or solving a problem. It's like everything else in life. We want to control it. So here's the way backward. We don't just need a different set of questions. We need a whole different way of being with God. We need things like silence. Legitimate silence. It is a physical and audible reminder that you did not pursue God first. 
God pursued you, is pursuing you, and you respond to God. And so you being silent is you realizing, I am not my list of anxieties, sins, failures, or overwhelming emotions right now. The only thing I am is a still child in the presence of a father. And then there are four movements. I'll go through these real fast. One of the, the first one is Lectio, which is just to read. So let's say your reading for the day is Luke 6, right? And you stumble on Luke 6, 6, 26, 28, which is the scripture on loving your enemies, okay? So you read this passage, and then you reread it. It's probably two, three, four times. Again, we're not reading for information here. We're reading to listen. What is standing out to me? What strikes me? What might I be noticing in a new way? There is an expectancy that God will meet you. And so you go from reading to meditating or reflection. These two questions have been so helpful and instrumental to me in my reading the scripture. And is this, where is their resonance in me? Where is my spirit encouraged right now? What aspect of my inner life is being touched? Lean into that. And then where is there resistance in me? Where do I feel a check in my spirit? Where might I sense a conviction or a clenched fist of tightness? And what might that be communicating to me? It is really important to not judge the dynamics that are happening in you as you read the scripture. It's actually just a moment to lean into that. It is probably God speaking to you. I've heard the voice of God feels like a feather tap. If you have ever been tapped by a feather, it is barely discernible. But it is discernible if you are actually not so distracted from everything else going on around you. And then, of course, is a moment to respond. What is the invitation to me and what is my response to it? Pain? Is there a frustration being touched? Perhaps revelation or self-discovery. Maybe there's a place of unconfessed sin. Perhaps overwhelming remorse or a past scenario. Or in this situation, you're reading Luke 6 and you're like, enemies. I don't really have enemies. Well, who am I at odds with right now? And what might God, might, what might God be asking of me to do? Because God is asking of you something. To be honest, God does not desire a staple answer. He just requires your honesty. Psalm 62, 8, pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Maybe it's just the recognition that you are a beloved child of God. And today, walking into your workplace or your families or wherever your neighboring relationships, it is the reminder I am secure. I have nothing to prove, nothing to gain, and nothing to lose. And the last one is to rest. This is the realization that we need the Holy Spirit to walk out the redemptive purposes of the kingdom of God in this world. So Majorie Thompson says, When our response has been played out in all of its fury, angst, or exuberance, we come to a place of rest in God. Here there are no expectations, demands, no need to know, no desire, but to be in the divine presence, receptive to what God desires to do with us. Okay, this is not a formula. It's not an equation to get God to do something you want. It's just a way of relating to God. If you read the scripture 
in a different way and it's working and you feel like God is speaking to you and you're walking in the ways of faithfulness and truth, great. Teach us. My experience with predominant Christians is a real lack of handle and tools to engage the Bible. And so this is just one other way to lean into the voice of God. The reason I had Michael read the entire Hebrews 4 section is because it says, for we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And he says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Do you realize that in this description is not a throne of power or of shame or even of judgment? It is a throne. Of grace. It is the place where desperate people come to find a father gushing in love. Our natural inclination is to read the scripture when life is on the up and up. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. I want you to lean in on the down and out. Because the word here um, for weakness, <laughs> there, it, it, to sympathize with our weaknesses, sympathize has got this interesting, it's suffer with. God suffers with us. When you are pained, Jesus is pained. When you suffer, Jesus suffers. When you are angered, Jesus might very well be angry with you, particularly over righteous issues. So we can come with confidence to the place where mercy is present and grace is real. And we have the weird, strange, beautiful audacity to believe that. And there is no place that you're going to find the welcome of God for his sons and daughters like that of the Bible. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we need your spirit to intersect and intervene with our life. For us to come alive. And for the scriptures to come alive in us. Where they're not just words on a page. But they're actually a, they're a part of a story. Would you do that in us? Would you increase our craving and our desire for you? We want to meet with you. We want to be with you. You are not a theory or a concept. You are a person. Would you personalize your word to us? Would you communally personalize your word to us? Might we be people overflowing in grace and committed to truth? In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.